The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. Awesome. Our creative team does such a great job. Leading us into the series we're going to start today called Sin. If you have a Bible, Matthew chapter 4 is the text today. I want to preach a message this morning that I'm calling a movement of sent people. And if you... uh, If you know the record of Scripture and know the years following Jesus and what happened in the life of the early church, the people that established the local church, um, the only way we can describe what happened in the years following the establishment of the local church when Jesus had died, was buried, rose to the right hand of the Father, the only word we can use to describe what happened was a movement. And, um, and, and in fact, the word that's used in the Bible to describe church is the word ecclesia. It comes from two words. The first is ek, meaning out of. The second word is kaleo, meaning called out. The idea of church in the Bible gives us this idea of a group of people that are called out and they gather around a certain idea and a movement. And that's how the church existed for many, 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 many years. And then somewhere in the Uh, course of time and history around the dark ages, things began to change. And this understanding and how we perceive church began to change. And whereas church could be described as a movement, now church becomes in the dark ages this place where you go to attend an event. It becomes this religious um, activity that people uh, participate in once a week. In fact, um, the, the Bible was written in Latin during this time. The, the priests who would uh, communicate the scriptures would read the Bible in Latin. They would also speak in Latin. So unless you spoke Latin, which was not a common language, you really didn't understand the Bible and you didn't understand what was happening. So church simply became not a movement, but a place where you attend. Well, not long after the Dark Ages, there was a period of time known as the Reformation. And we owe a lot of thanks to the people that were involved in the Reformation. There was one particular guy named William Tyndale. And I remember studying William Tyndale when I was in seminary, but he was a key figure in the Reformation. And Tyndale believed that the Bible should be accessible to people in their common language. So he gave his life to the translation of the Bible in English. In fact, he believed that the church was, in fact, a movement and not simply an event. And so as he began to translate the Bible in English, obviously the people of the day, the people who uh, led churches, the people who were in power and benefited from the church were not happy that William Tyndale was making the Bible accessible into people's language. And so before he died... um, and by the way, he died because he was translating the Bible into English. In fact, the history tells us that he was burned at the stake. He was hung at the stake because he was tried as a heretic for making the Bible, believe it or not, accessible into the hands of people. Some of you today, you came into church, you have a Bible. I would imagine not many of you in this auditorium, but some of you probably have a Bible that was written in the King James Version. If you have a Bible written in the King James Version, you're holding the answer that... Um, William Tyndale prayed to God that he would allow him to make the Bible accessible to people. Before he died, Tyndale said this, If God spares my life, ere many years, I will cause the boy who drives the plow to know more of the scriptures than you do. And as he was being burned at the stake, the last recorded words that Tyndale spoke were this. He said, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And so today... Whatever Bible you have, if it's written in English or even if it's in another language, you're holding that Bible today and able to read it and understand it as a result of William Tyndale's work. He saw the church as a movement. 
not just an event, a religious activity that we participate in. That's the essence of church. That's the essence of, of, of what we do as we gather. It's not a place. It's not an institution that just provides services to people. It's certainly not just a once-a-week religious gathering. And the danger, the danger in every generation, our generation, the one before us, the one after us, the danger in every generation is that we have to decide. Is this thing we call church, is it actually a movement or is it simply a religious activity? And so this idea of movement that I want to talk about this morning. Movement implies motion. It implies something is moving forward. And the question we have before us in this new series that we have is twofold. It's a question for us as a church corporately. It's also a question for you as an individual believer. And so corporately we have to ask ourselves this. Is our church simply an institution that provides services and simply a place where people gather, or is it indeed part of a movement? The individual question I want you to ask through the course of this series is this. Am I simply attending a church? Am I simply a church attender, or am I a part of a movement? Am I what Jesus calls a sent Disciple, And that's what I want to focus on here this morning. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. We have a record of Jesus calling the first disciples to himself. There were four that he called that day, and I want you to read it with me. Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 18. As Jesus was walking along the side, uh, beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. And they were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. That's important. We'll come back to it in just a moment. Verse 19, Jesus said to them, come, follow me. Then the second thing he said to them was, and I will send you out to fish for people. Verse 20, at once they left their nets and they followed him. Now the next two disciples, verse 21, going on from there, says he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, also known as the sons of thunder. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee and they were preparing their nets. They were also fishermen in the family business. Jesus called them and immediately they left the boat and their father and they followed him. I don't know if you ever read this passage before. I don't know if it strikes you as strange that Jesus would sort of show up on the scene. He just kind of walks on to the scene, the shore of the Sea of Galilee, looks at a couple guys who were just carrying on the family business, and he looks at them and he says, come and follow me. I don't know if you ever thought about this. Like, What would compel two guys that are doing the family business, engaged in what they do on a daily basis, the way they provide income and sustenance for their family? Like Jesus just shows up and does like this Jedi mind trick phrase, hey, come follow me. And all of a sudden, these guys leave their inheritance, leave their business, and they follow Jesus. Isn't it weird? It just seems strange. Why would, why would these guys leave what they have and follow Jesus? Well, there's a backstory to what's going on here in Matthew chapter 4. The backstory is this. Every Jewish boy, which these men would have been Jewish boys, 
before the age of 10, every Jewish boy is put into what's known as Torah school. They understand, they go and study the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And at the age of 10, boys are then qualified as to whether or not they should continue their religious studies. And so at age 10, that group of Hebrew boys would be weeded out and those who showed the most potential would continue to study the Old Testament and those who did not would be cut and they would be sent back to the family business. Now the boys who continued at age 10, they would study until they were 17. At age 17, Hebrew boys, if they wanted to continue their religious studies, maybe even become a rabbi, they would apply. They would find a rabbi that they respected, that they enjoyed, that they wanted to follow and become a disciple of, and they would make application to that rabbi. And so the rabbis of the day had the ability to be selective in who they chose. The reason was there was no MLB. There wasn't, you know, indie bands that you just joined up with. There was no tech startup. And so family businesses were the primary sustenance of life. And so these rabbis had the ability to be selective in who they chose because there was an abundance of people they could pick from. And so the rabbis would choose and the rest of them would go back to the family business. Now, um, there is a special set of rabbis that's important to understanding what's going on here in Matthew chapter 4. There was sort of an elite rabbi. You had the rabbis and you had an elite rabbi known as Simichah. Simicha, I had to listen to that on Hebrew and get it right too. There's an elite level of rabbi known as Simicha. And the Simichahs possessed this special authority um, these semikas, these elite rabbis, knew the Old Testament better than the rest. Also, these elite rabbis were men who had been known to have performed miracles. Now think about that just for a moment in the context of Jesus. Think about those three things. Jesus was a man who preached with authority. Matthew chapter 7, verse 29, we see it often in the Gospels. When he taught, people would respond and say, wow, this man speaks with authority. Jesus obviously was a man who performed lots of miracles. And then finally, Jesus um, was a man who knew the scriptures exceedingly well. Remember, by the age of 12, Jesus was in the synagogue teaching other people. And so Jesus shows up on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, back to Peter and Andrew. And he looks at these young teenage boys, and the fact that they're working the family business tells us what? It tells us they didn't make the cut. It tells us they were junior varsity Jewish boys, and they didn't make the cut. And so Jesus shows up on the scene and the team, the squad that Jesus chose around him, the squad was B team. I mean, they were junior varsity at best. They didn't make the cut. And so think about that just for a moment. Here's a couple leftovers. A couple leftover Jewish boys who didn't make the cut and knowing the scriptures, they they were not being discipled by a rabbi. And all of a sudden, this elite rabbi, because he had been known, shows up on the Sea of Galilee and he says, come, follow me. What do you think Peter and Andrew are going to do? Obviously, they're going to follow Jesus. Secondly, this whole thing that that, that proceeds, these events that happen, tell us something else. Jesus didn't choose the best Jesus didn't uh, choose the ones that were most learned. He didn't choose the ones who knew the scriptures the best. Jesus chose the willing. He didn't look at guys and think, wow, this guy's got potential. Wow, this guy's, man, he's incredibly influential in his community. Because what Jesus knew was that eventually 
these boys would be filled with his power. And what Jesus teaches us is that even the weakest men who are filled with God's power are stronger and more great, greater than men who are strong without the power of God. I love the way John MacArthur describes the men that Jesus chose. He says this, God skipped all the wise of the day. The great scholars were in Egypt. The great library was in Alexandria. The great philosophers were in Athens. The powerful were in Rome. He passed over Herodotus, the historian, and Socrates, the great thinker, and Julius Caesar. He chose men so ordinary, it was comical. No rabbis, no teachers, no religious experts, not even a synagogue ruler. Half are fishermen, one was essentially an IRS agent, and one was a former terrorist. <laughs> and this is how Jesus begins his ministry. He calls people to be with him, people who he would disciple, who were just ordinary, normal people. Can I just say this to you before we go into the rest of this passage today? Would you stop making excuses for why God can't use you? Stop making excuses for why God can't use you. I'm not eloquent. I don't have great speech. I, I don't have influence in my circle of friends. I've never done anything in my life that would cause people to listen to me. How could God use me? I'm not smart. I'm not gifted. I'm not talented. Can I say this to you this morning? If you are available, you're qualified. If you're available, you're qualified. And that's how Jesus approached and chose those whom he would disciple, those who would follow him. Have you made yourself available to God? Are you available to God? Now, listen to the description that Jesus gives for those who would follow him. And this is what Jesus says. In verse 19, Jesus says to Peter, come, follow me. I love that this is sort of the first word that Jesus says to his first disciples. He says, follow, right? Peter and Andrew, they didn't know where they were going. They didn't know what they're going to be doing. But what Peter and Andrew did know was who they were following. And what we need to extract from this is that a disciple's primary call is to be with Jesus. And so these young disciples, these boys who had passed this, this primary education in Hebrew school, eventually went on as a 17-year-old and applied to be what Hebrew um, history calls a Talmud. If they were a disciple of a rabbi, what would happen is they would go and they would sit at the feet of a rabbi. And then the, the rabbi would examine them with questions. He tried to figure out what they knew and what they didn't know to see if they were qualified. And so these Talmids, these disciples would go and they would follow somebody so closely. They would follow them so closely that they would become just like them. Not, not just because so that they would know what that rabbi knew, but also because they would do what that rabbi did. And so this Talmud would follow a rabbi for multiple years, and he would imitate everything in every way about that rabbi. And so it's said that the highest compliment that one of these young disciples would have and would receive would be the statement that the dust of your rabbi is all over you, meaning you so emulated the rabbi that you're following, that whatever he stepped in, you got, you got covered with. What Jesus is teaching us here and what we discover as we read this idea of a disciple in the New Testament is that to be a disciple is to become like Jesus. 
And we know the story of the 12 disciples, Peter and James and Andrew and John. They go and they sit at the feet of Jesus. They follow him for multiple years. They watch Jesus preach. They watch him teach. They watch him heal. They watch him show compassion. They watch him extract himself from everyone and go and spend time with the Father. And so they sat at the feet of Jesus. They became a disciple of Jesus. Why? Because they were with him. Now, we don't have that privilege today. We don't get the privilege of riding home today and Jesus riding shotgun with us. We can't go to Porto's today and Jesus go grab lunch with us. But what we do have, the privilege we do have today is that there were people who were with Jesus and now because of the scriptures and what they wrote, we know what Jesus said. We know what Jesus did. We know what Jesus thought. We know how Jesus walked. And we now have the privilege to walk with Jesus, although he is not physically present with us. And that's the essence of being a disciple, the primary call. The primary call of a disciple is to be with Jesus. Now, there's another explanation of this idea of following Jesus. Verse 22, this is what it said. We called the second two disciples. Verse 22 says, And immediately they left the boat and their father, and it says they followed him. So before these disciples walked with Jesus and followed Jesus, there were some things that were in front of them that were most important in life. And what we see here is Jesus asked them to follow him. And the first thing that says they left was their boat. They left their boat. This was their livelihood. This was their job. This is how they took care of themselves. This is how they provided sustenance for their family. The second thing they left was their father. This was these significant relationships in their life. The idea that we get about following Jesus is that um, when we follow Jesus, we put everything that once once in front of us behind us in order to follow Jesus. A disciple gives everything in their life precedence. A disciple gives Jesus everything um, precedence over everything else in their life. And so the trajectory of a disciple is this idea of giving something away. Not necessarily taking something in. We get this from Luke chapter 9. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer explains it this way. He was an author, wrote some of the greatest words on what it means to be a disciple. He said, when Christ bids a man to follow, he bids him to come and die. The essence of following Jesus, coming and dying. Jesus was the perfect example of this. Think about it for a moment. When Jesus died on a cross, on a hill in Jerusalem, the only thing that Jesus was left with, the only thing in his life that he was left with, his clothes, were gambled over by four soldiers that guarded the cross. Everything in Jesus' life at that point had been given away. Everything in Jesus' life had been taken from him. And now Jesus goes to the cross, and in giving us his death, what happens is the world gains the opportunity for life. And so everything that Jesus gave away, God, three days later, would resurrect it, and he would offer it to the world. This idea of dying to ourself, we shouldn't be surprised that this is the power of God. This is how the power of God continues to work today in order for the world to gain life, in order for the world to experience life, it must come through the death of the church. Now, what I don't mean by that is that all of us have to die for Jesus. That's certainly not the case, although the blood of the martyrs has always advanced the cause of Jesus throughout the world. 
But what this idea of dying to ourselves and following Jesus implies is that there's some things in life that must die. There's some things in life, our personal dreams, our, our personal desires, our personal reputations, sometimes our finances, sometimes our friends that we send out. There are things in life that must die. And here's the concept. The call of a disciple is this idea that we die to ourselves, listen to me, so that the glory of God could be resurrected in its place. Think about the things that you have to die to as a disciple. As a high school student, you may need to die to your reputation to be labeled. As a businessman, you may need to die to common businesses, business practices so that your integrity and honor could lead forward. If you work in the industry, you may have to die to some things in your life that Christ could be known. Think about this for a moment. We just participated in this moment of offering and tithes. Even your finances, even your money must die so that God can resurrect it and bring glory to himself and offer life to the world. Here's the concept. There's some things in life that were in front of us before Jesus that now need to get in line behind Jesus so that they can all follow Jesus. Your job, your reputation, your finances, they all should follow Jesus. That's the way of being a disciple, dying to ourselves. God resurrects those things for his glory and our, God, our good. This idea of dying to ourselves is important because of the second description of a disciple that Jesus uses here in Matthew chapter 4. The reason this idea of dying to ourselves is important is because I believe that most of the modern church doesn't exhibit this second trait of what a disciple looks like. Uh, I believe the modern church struggles with this idea of a disciple, and that idea is this. Jesus said, come and follow me. But the second thing he said was, and I will send you out to fish for people. It's this idea that a disciple is sent by Jesus to reproduce himself. The idea that, that, that to follow Jesus is to be sent out. It's so difficult for the modern church to, to process this idea of being a disciple. When I was a youth pastor years ago, we would always do camp, typically on the beach. It was my favorite place to do camp. And so one year we were doing camp um, on the coast in South Carolina. And, um, and so at this particular location, there was this big grassy area that was right next to the hotel. And then it was right in front of the beach. And so during free time, kids would go out and, and they'd spend a lot of their free time on the grassy area playing soccer or whatever they play. And so I'm walking past this grassy area. Uh, one day at camp, and there's these couple kids that are playing with a boomerang. And, uh, and so I walk by the kids, and I'm like, hey, give me a shot at the boomerang, right? And so before I tell you what happened, let me tell you why it happened. Um, um, so I am the home of uh, a Y chromosome, all right? Um, I am a man with lots of testosterone. Every year at camp, we would do guys versus girls night. The girls almost always won. I believe it was a uh, mandate of scripture because Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride comes before the fall. And every guys versus girls night, all the guys would chant, proud to be the home of the Y chromosome. So that was God's judgment. We would lose guys versus girls night every single year. And so, and so what happened was a result of why it happened. Um, I am the home of a Y chromosome. And like every male, I wanted to prove myself that I could throw a boomerang and it would be awesome. And so I grabbed that boomerang and I threw it. 
And it was unbelievable. I threw it, and it went a long ways. And it was incredible. It's flying through the air. And all of a sudden, the boomerang turns around. And here we are standing on the grass watching the boomerang. It um, feels like forever away from us. Turn around. It's coming directly at us, right? And uh, nobody got hurt. Nobody went to the hospital. Nobody died. Nobody, no kids lost their head or anything like that. But the, the hotel didn't fare the same. And so the boomerang is barreling towards the hotel and it hits the side of the hotel and it buries itself halfway into the stucco and it's stuck in the side of the hotel. It was amazing. And there was this moment, we're all standing out there watching it. It was like, oh, wow, that was awesome. And there was this another moment where it was like, oh, wow, the youth pastor just did $1,000 worth of damage to the hotel. I think about the boomerang moment. And that's the effect of being sent by the gospel to those around us. This idea of being sent out like this spiritual cyclone. If you ever experience a tornado, sucked in and then propelled out. That's the force of the gospel when God sends us to the world that we live in, that's the impact that we should have. When we're called by Jesus to follow him, he sends us out. And I want to suggest to us as a church, when he sends us out with the power of the gospel, it's the most impactful, transformative experience that our culture needs to know. Our God is ascending God. That's what the scripture says. Almost every time God speaks to someone in scripture, he's sending them on his mission. Think about it. Think about Abraham. God said, Abraham, I'm sending you out to be a blessing to all the families on the earth. Esther, she was sent to the palace of the king of Persia. Why? To save the Jewish nation. Nehemiah, he was sent to be the cupbearer for King Artaxerxes. Why? So that he would be sent back out to rebuild Jerusalem. Think about the story of Hosea, if you know it. God would send Hosea out yet again to search for Gomer, a beautiful picture of God's love for his people. Think about Jonah. We preached this series several months ago. It's a beautiful picture of how the people of God refused to be sent to the nation of Nineveh. Paul and Barnabas, Acts chapter 13. They gather around the disciples. The disciples pray for them. And in verse 3, what it says is, Paul and Barnabas were sent out. They went to Cyprus. Then they went to Turkey with the gospel. Now, think about Jesus. Sent by God. The Son of God to be the Savior of the world. If you read the book of John, 44 times. The book of John, 44 times, it talks about Jesus being sent out. But then Jesus has a phrase for us. He's got sort of a one-sentence phrase that he describes those of us who are his disciples. He says, you are sent. John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, what does he say? So I am sending you. Listen to me. There is not a definition of disciple in the Bible that doesn't include being sent. It's the essence of being a disciple, that we follow Jesus, that we're with Jesus, that everything in life takes a back seat because Jesus takes the front seat and he takes precedent. But the second half of this idea of disciple is not that we walk with Jesus, but then eventually he sends us out. And now, 
the church. And I just don't mean this building. I don't mean this name. I mean the church, you and me. We're the vehicle to complete God's mission. If you were here two weeks ago, we talked about the storyline of God. The fourth storyline is the one that we're all living in. The restoration of all things. We're in process of that. And now we are the vehicle for how God is restoring all things to himself. Martin Luther, who was also a reformer around the same time as William Tyndale, said it wouldn't matter if Jesus died a thousand times if no one heard about it. But see, the tendency in the church is to believe that there's a special category of people who are asked to be sent. Those are the missionaries. Those are the church planners. Those are the pastors. And those are sent to the world with the mission of God. Can I say this to you? Not one time in Scripture. Read it from front to back. Genesis 1-1, Revelation 22-21. Not one time in Scripture will you ever find the word missionary. Why? Because all of us are sent. It's the essence of being a disciple. That's the record of the book of Acts. It's how the early church was founded. Think about this for a moment. Jesus called 12. These four men were part of that 12. When Jesus died, there were 120 disciples. Think about that. Only 120 disciples. If you died as a pastor giving your whole life to ministry and there were only 120 people that you had the privilege of ministering to, in most circles they would think, wow, that's not very successful. Jesus, sent to the world to be the savior of the world, died. 120 people are following Jesus at this point. Think about that. So the world now, two millennia later, has been changed by Jesus. How does that happen? I've quoted Rodney Stark before. He authored a book talking about how the early church grew. And he said that it didn't grow because Jesus built this mega audience. It grew because Jesus built a sending community. By the end of the first century, 65-ish years after Jesus died, Estimates are there were only about 50,000 disciples, 50,000 converts. We think about the early church. We think about this explosion like it was immediate. It wasn't immediate. 50,000 estimated by the end of the first century, 65-ish years after Jesus died. Fast forward 300 years, and for most of that period of time, from the time Jesus died until about 400 A.D., mid-300s, the church had been persecuted. They'd been driven underground because Rome persecuted the church until Constantine came along and brought the church out of the shadows into the light. Around 400 AD from the time Jesus died, which is about 300 years, 300 and a half years, estimates say there are now 34 million disciples. Some people say half the Roman Empire had been converted to following Jesus. How does that happen? didn't happen because Jesus gathered this mega crowd, right? I mean, I'm not opposed to mega crowds. I hope God gives us a mega crowd as a church. I hope God gives our city, our churches in our city, mega crowds to preach the gospel. But the strategy was not a mega audience. It was a sending community. And so the very last thing that Jesus says to us, Matthew chapter 28, he's ascending into the air. He's speaking to the disciples who are gathered. This is the mission statement for Story City Church. This is the mission statement for every believer. This is what he says. Therefore, as you are going, not as you go to church, not as your pastor is preaching the gospel, not 
as you give money so somebody else goes overseas to preach the gospel, as you are going to your industry job tomorrow, as you are going to your consulting job tomorrow, as you are going to your nannying job tomorrow, as you are going to your family this afternoon, as you are going to that recreational sport team you play on this week, as you are going, Jesus says, what does he say? Make disciples. Not just the pastors who preach on the stage and the missionaries around the world. Make disciples of all nations. What does he say? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's the core of what we do here at Story City Church. It's the core of who we are. This is the mission statement. I'm I'm not big on mission statements in churches because oftentimes we try to be crafty and creative to draw people in. And the mission statement has already been written. Matthew chapter 28. It's our mission statement. What is that mission statement? To help people find and follow Jesus. That's it. Luke chapter 19, Jesus said, what was said about Jesus, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. It's not just what our church is purposed to do. If you're a disciple, it's what God has commissioned every believer to be a part of. That's difficult to hear 2018 because this definition of disciple has virtually disappeared in our circles. Why? Because we're so consumed with our own circle. We're so consumed with all of the things that are in front of us instead of Jesus and the idea of being sent to someone is foreign to most of the church. That's why we're planning a series bringing us back to the definition of a disciple. Now listen to what an old dead preacher, Charles Spurgeon, lived in England. Listen to what he said. If Jesus is precious to you, you will not be able to keep your good news to yourself. You will be whispering it into your child's ear. You will be telling it to your husband. You will be earnestly imparting it to your friend. Without the charms of eloquence, you will be more than eloquent. Your heart will speak and your eyes will flash as you talk of his sweet love. Now listen to the next words that Charles Spurgeon says. This is a quote as he's preaching to his congregation. And this quote has rung through the halls of churches for over a century. It's convicting. Charles Spurgeon says, every Christian here, he's talking to his own congregation, is either a missionary or an imposter. In essence, Charles Spurgeon is saying, if you consider yourself a disciple but don't consider yourself sent, then you may not be a disciple. You may actually be an imposter. You either try to spread abroad the kingdom of Christ, he says, or else you do not love him at all. It cannot be that there is a high appreciation of Jesus and a totally silent tongue about him. If you really know Christ, you are like the one who has found honey, and you will call others to taste of its sweetness. You are like the beggar who has discovered an endless supply of food. You must go tell the hungry crowd that you have found Jesus, and you are anxious that they should find it too. Can I close this morning telling you the kind of church that we are? I have three phrases that I want to describe us, and I'm going to be done. The kind of church that we are, first of all, is a church that helps people follow Jesus. We're a church that helps people follow Jesus. The primary call of a disciple is to be with Jesus. We must make disciples. And listen to me. 
If you attend a church wondering what the platform and the program is that we provide for you to make disciples, I need to say to you, you need to walk away from that thinking. You need to crucify that line of thinking and never let it rise up in your life again. The church needs to be about making disciples. And yes, we are in the process as a team trying to provide some of these platforms and programs. But can I tell you, you don't need a platform or a program to walk with Jesus and have others in your life walking with him. Some very sweet moments over the last month have happened with a guy by the name of Patrick Griffin. And I don't even know if he's in this auditorium this morning. But he called me and texted me about two months ago and said, would you study the Bible with me together? And so we've been meeting nearly weekly when we're both in town. This week we're meeting twice, just simply opening the Bible together. There's nothing magical about this idea of following Jesus. But we're the kind of church that wants to help people follow Jesus. Secondly, we're the kind of church that wants to help people find Jesus. And I mean that corporately. Like corporately by seeing people come to Christ, by preaching the gospel, by providing platforms like Better Together LA for people who are on the fringe as a disciple and wondering how do I engage the mission of God in my city? We're going to provide a platform for you. But can I also say to you, we're the kind of church that's going to help people find Jesus. We're going to plant churches. We are going to plant churches. We're going to plant churches in our city. 6% of every dollar you give every single week goes to help plant churches around the world. We are going to personally be engaged in planting churches in our city. We're corporately going to help people find Jesus. If you're investigating Story City Church, I want to tell you, we are a church that's going to help people find Jesus, never going to hide behind it. We are going to preach the gospel. We are going to plant churches. People are going to come to know the Lord. But can I tell you, it will never happen if the people of Story City don't individually live sent. It just can't happen. There, it just can't happen that we steward this, this massive corporate thing, do all of these. We can't do it without people who are individually living sent. I, I, I know exactly how most of us feel after a message on this idea of living sent. We don't like it because living sent involves a life of sacrifice. But can I tell you the third type of thing we are? The third kind of church we are? We're the kind of church that's concerned with sending capacity more than we are with seating capacity. I pray. I pray that God would give us the privilege and the opportunity to send some of you out to other parts of our city to plant churches. I pray that God would give us the privilege to help train up and equip some of you in this room across two services, people in our city that call this place home, I pray that God would give us the opportunity to equip you to go to the places where you live, breathe, work, exist, and play. Why? Because we're concerned about sending capacity. Why are you concerned? Because that's our mission. That's the mission of God that he gave us. That's the essence of being a disciple. You cannot be a disciple without movement in your life. It's not possible. You can't be a disciple if there's no motion in your life. And can I say to you, long-term movements are not built just by swelling crowds. Not even when Jesus is the one gathering, by the way. Long-term sustainable movements of the gospel have to involve individuals being sent out, replicating their faith in someone else's life. Now, typically there are three ways that we look 
at the mission of God and how we individually participate. A friend of mine wrote a book a while back and he used this sort of metaphor and I think it's appropriate and I want to share it with you and I'm going to close. Typically when we think about this idea of the mission of God and our part in it, some of us think about the church as sort of this cruise ship. Like this cruise ship where we just come and we board occasionally. We experience all the pleasures on the board, on the ship, on the cruise ship. And the cruise ship may offer things like good family ministry and may offer things like a pastor who tells jokes and doesn't go past 37 minutes or so. So we look at church as like this cruise ship where we go and we have this religious experience. It's not the idea of church. Sometimes we have this idea about the mission of God and our part in it. We think of the church as sort of this battleship. It's not a bad thing. But the idea of the church as a battleship has this idea that the church corporately is the primary advancer of the mission of God. The pastor preaches the gospel and people get saved. When I leave on church on Sunday, I go back to my own world. I'll come back and the pastors will do their thing next Sunday and the mission of God will advance. This battleship mentality sort of comes with this idea, this cruise ship, battleship mentality. Sometimes we, we choose multiple cruise ships and multiple battleships because we like the family ministry here. The pastor's a little more funnier over here. The music sounds a little tighter over here. And there's a third idea and there's a third way of looking at what it is that we are called as a church and you individually. It's this metaphor of an aircraft carrier. My grandmother's brother died as he was stationed in Pearl Harbor when they were bombed and attacked. And if he could stand on the stage today, I think he would probably tell us that the last place they wanted to engage in battle was on the deck of their own ship. Why? Because an aircraft carrier's purpose is to load the plane, load the supplies, load the warriors, load the pilots, and send them out to engage in battle. That's the kind of church we want to be. That's the kind of church we want to be. That's the kind of church I want you to be a part of. That's the kind of church I want individuals to live like. You come, but you are sent. You go to your neighborhood this afternoon, the family that you live with. You go to the people that you work alongside. You came to church, yes, but then you were sent out. You were following Jesus, but like a spiritual cyclone, he drew you in in order to send you out. It's the essence of being a disciple. I want to close with this. This is what this series is about, by the way. And next week, I'm, I'm super pumped to have a guy that's going to speak to us next week. And, and he's going to talk about this idea of being sent to your vocation, to your job, to your workplace. He specifically has a niche in the entertainment industry where he's been serving people for a lot of years. But he's going to speak broadly. He's going to talk about what it means to be sent to the place where you work. And in two weeks, we're going to have a guy who's coming in. He's a great athlete and then had a great job. And in the midst of this great job that was providing great finances, God said, I'm sending you out to Los Angeles. He's going to talk about what it means for your life just to be available, to be sent. And then three weeks from now, a friend of mine who has a ministry in Haiti, God has used him in an extraordinary way in his neighborhood. He came under conviction about the people that he lives beside. He's not a pastor. He's not a preacher. He's not a missionary. 
God convicted him about his neighbors. God has raised up people in his neighborhood who have come to know Christ. It's an extraordinary story. He's gonna talk about what it means to live sent in your neighborhood, around the people that you live with. Then I'm gonna close this series out the remaining two weeks. That's what this series is about. Can I also say this to you? This coming fall, you can pray for us as a church. We're processing what this idea means to us in terms of church membership, what it means to us in terms of how do we put discipleship opportunity in place in our church. And then the last thing I wanna say as a point of application is this. In three weekends, we are offering the opportunity for you to live sent in our city. Three days, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I wanna say to you, there's a lot of reasons why you should not come, you're out of town, something's going on, you gotta work. If you call Story City Church home and you're a disciple, I wanna say to you, you should be serving Better Together LA Weekend as an opportunity to live sent to our city. Now, Jesus said he desired, the scriptures say that God desires all to come to a saving knowledge of God, everyone. Think about that for a moment. That's overwhelming. 19 million people in Los Angeles, that's overwhelming. That's too many. Everyone is too many. Can I say to you, a movement of God where the gospel advances only happens when everyone becomes someone. Can I ask you to do something for the next seven days to make everyone become someone in your life? The gospel advances when everyone becomes Doug and Amy. The mission of God advances when everyone becomes Tony and Lucy. The mission of God moves forward when everyone becomes Auntie Sonia and Uncle Barry. The gospel goes forth when everyone becomes Jeffrey. Everyone in your life has to become someone. Can I ask you to give two minutes this week? Two minutes this week. You call yourself a disciple. Ask God. Pray two minutes this week for someone by name. Let everyone become someone and you pray for them. God, after the first service, I sat back there and I prayed for those names I just called. And this is what I prayed. God, if you want to send me, and he has, I know it. I'm willing. Let everyone become someone in your life and pray for them this week for two minutes. God, if you want to send me, send me to take the gospel to them. Last thing and I'm done. I've said that like four times. Are you a disciple? Are you following Jesus? Like, I don't mean do you go to church. Like, does Jesus take, is he in front of you? And you're following? Are there other things that have taken precedence over Jesus? Are you, are you following Jesus? Is anything stirred in your affections and your emotions when Jesus says, and I'm sending you? Are you sent? Are you a disciple? Have you trusted Jesus for salvation? Have you understood that you're not a happenstance or circumstance? God created you. God loves you. There's a problem between you and him called sin. Unless that problem's never solved, 
the result is death both in this life and the next? Have you ever come to the place where you realize that God in his wonderful love for you died on the cross for you to solve the problem of sin? That if you would confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, turn from your sin, Jesus would save you. You would become a child of God, a follower of God, a disciple of God. Has it ever happened? Are you a disciple? Listen, your story is welcome here. You are welcome here. My prayer for you as you are here, you become a disciple, not a church attender. God, there's so many other. You could be at the beach today. You go to the mountains. My prayer is that you would become a disciple. Are you a disciple? Nothing magical and mystical. I ask you to do anything you don't want to do, make you stand on stage, say anything you don't want to say. Simply have a moment before the Lord and you say, God, I realize I'm not a disciple. I've never been saved. It's not something that happens 10 times over your life or 20 times, once when you're young, then you're a teenager, then you do it again as an adult. If God has saved you, it's a watershed moment, a yes or no moment, a black or white moment. Eternity has changed. He calls you his child. Have you trusted Jesus for salvation? Are you a disciple? Place your faith in Jesus today, I beg you. Stop playing church. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for today. God, we love you. God, may we be a church that lives sent. God, help us. God, let us not walk away from a morning like this experiencing guilt and shame over something we've not done, but God, may you replace that and fill the gaps, the experience of joy, knowing we are a participant in the restoration of all things. You give us the privilege of being your mouthpiece, your hands and feet in our neighborhoods, in our jobs, our life in general, Jesus. May we be that church. May we live sin. In Jesus' name, amen.